Weekends in the fall are very exciting for me because I'm a huge football fan, if you hadn't heard. And, uh, and I, and I kind of enhance the football experience by participating with others in, in fantasy football leagues like we have here at PRISM, uh, headed by the commish, uh, Brian Yap. Uh, but uh, additionally, uh, I participate with some fellow graduates of uh, West Virginia University in, in this annual Pick'em contest. And every week on Yahoo Sports, we go through and we pick uh, the winners. And, you know, it's a huge competition. There's like over 100 people involved in it. And, and, uh, and one of the components of that Pick'em contest is you have to figure out who's the favorite. Now, if you're not a better, and I'm not because I don't have anything to bet, but it, it, uh, if you were somebody, point spreads are a big deal. It's who's favored and by how many points. So a particular team like my West Virginia Mountaineers uh, against Georgia State this past week was favored by 40 points. Obviously, I took Georgia State uh, because West Virginia hadn't scored 40 points all year. So how they could win by 40 points, I would not know, and I was right. We did win, but it wasn't by 40. That's the game. You have to figure out who's the favorite, who isn't the favorite. And, and this is part of uh, the joy of watching the annual basketball tournament on television as well, the NCAA tournament, is we end up knowing who the favorite is, and they have done, they have done studies and shown that statistically a huge percentage of the people almost always cheer for the underdog. In fact, uh, in... Uh, 1991, a pair of researchers at Bowling Green State University, Jimmy Fraser and Eldon Snyder, published a paper on what they called the underdog concept in sports. These two researchers posed a simple hypothetical scenario to more than 100 college students. Two teams, A and B, were meeting in a best-of-seven playoff series for some identified sport, and Team A was highly favored to win. Which team would the students root for? 81% chose the underdog. Now, I understand this because when you watch a, a game and you see that there's an underdog about to beat a heavily favored opponent, you find yourself pulling for the underdog. And have you ever asked why? Part of it is probably because of the entertainment value. It's, it's just more entertaining to watch a close game than it is to watch a blowout, unless it's your team, and then I'm all for blowouts. But at the same time, and I'm watching two teams, I find myself pulling for the exciting possibilities that somebody could beat the favorite. They could overcome the odds. And, and this is entertaining to us. It's enjoyable to us. It gives us a sense that anything is possible in the images of David and Goliath and all these things that get spoken of are brought to our memories. We cheer for the underdog. We know the favorite. But in reality, in the world of the everyday, unfortunately, most people favor those who they selfishly believe will help them. They want to be one of the favorites. We, like people who are going to help us, they are going to be our favorites. And in fact, we refer to favoritism as, quote-unquote, the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. Most people consider this is wrong. Favoritism has been practiced here. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I, for 10 years, served in the capacity of pastor to students at Wildwood Church in Tallahassee, Florida. There were students that I really enjoyed, and then there were students that were less than enjoyable. 
Let's just say that. And it's very easy, very natural to say, you know, I really enjoy being with these students because they're low maintenance and because they, they don't tax your emotions as much and they're not as much trouble or they're more helpful than other students. And the tension in that is, you know, you want to actually help students who want to help other students. And this is part of the, historically what they tell you to do in youth ministry. Find the kids who are influential Influence kids who are influencers. This is the young life model, if you don't know what I'm talking about. But that said, it tends to, if you're not careful, lead to a sense upon the part of some students that you're playing favorites. And I was accused of such a thing. And insofar as not enjoying being around students who were really kind of a pain um, and really enjoying being around other students who were like really easy and fun to be with and helpful, I probably did play favorites to a degree. Whether that's right or not or natural or not is irrelevant. I just know that from the standpoint of somebody who can play favorites, it's easy to do that. And as somebody on the other end, it's easy to get your feelings hurt because you don't feel like you are favored. You know, that's the root word of favoritism and favorite is favor. We're, we're actually looking for people to tell us, you're valuable to me. You're important. We begin to look to other folks and we begin to construct views of ourselves based on how others see us. Today in our Heroes of the Faith series, and for those of you who haven't picked up on it, uh, Heroes is in quotes because while we certainly celebrate the steps of faith that people in religious history have taken As examples to us, the New Testament does such a thing as well. Our aim in showing the failures of our venerated saints is to show that it is and always has been by God's grace that anything gets done. It is and always has been by God's grace that you and I play a part in what God is doing in the world in every way and in every age. And so today, to do this, We're going to take a look at the three passages of scriptures that were read to tell the story of the patriarch Jacob. I love that name, patriarch Jacob. I had hoped that my children would grow up referring to me as patriarch Chuck or dad. You know what I mean? Wouldn't that just be great? It reminds me of um, uh, Ulysses Everett McGill from the movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou? uh, Giving himself the great title of Paterfamilias, the head of the family. And that's kind of sort of what a guy likes to feel. And so in history, we refer to Jacob as the patriarch, an amazing title. But in studying Jacob's life from the Old Testament, you see that like his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather before him, he was infected by the same disease of sin that you and I have deep within our bones. D.A. Carson says this about Jacob. The account of Jacob is more than a story of a broken family restored. It shows how God uses the deeds of sinful people to save the world. For as Joseph, Jacob's son, said to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives. This is good news. People often will come to me because I'm a preacher and they will tell me the story. Sometimes it's a really sad story of how the pastor of their gargantuan church has turned bad in some way, or they've seen a part of his character that was really flawed. 
And I've been around guys who were pastors of large churches, and I just want you to know that is most certainly the case. I've never known anybody who was a minister who wasn't flawed significantly in some way. And lately, of late, and perhaps it's age, perhaps it's experience, I don't know, but I will say to people, isn't that great news? Isn't it great news when you find out that one of your heroes is flawed? Because that means that God will use anyone. That means that God can save anyone. That means that God, while he expects and commands and wants us to follow him, it means that you and I can take heart. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And so in Jacob's life, we want to look at, real quickly before I cross-reference another passage that deals with his very specific sin, I want to look at three things, his family, his future, and his failures. Now, Jacob's historic family is pretty amazing when you think about where he came from. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. He is the son of Isaac, and you may remember that he's the brother of Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, that's a sermon for a completely different week. Verse, I mean, the second thing I'll tell you about his uh, historic family is that he is the father, he is the patriarch of the 12 sons of the nation of Israel. If you did not know, Jacob is Israel. He was renamed Israel after wrestling with God. So when people say Israel loved this son, Joseph, more than others, they're saying Jacob. They're synonyms. It's like when the apostle Paul was previously Saul or when Peter was previously Simon. Oftentimes when God does an amazing thing to demonstrate the change that has taken place in somebody's life or the transformation or the new direction, he will give them the benefit of a, a new name and say, you know what, now we're going to go a new direction. It's like a whole new life has been given to you and, and to use them and to symbolize that, I'm going to give you a new title. So you are now going to be called Israel, the 12 sons of Israel. Now, you may recognize if you're really a astute observer, when you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, they don't necessarily match up to the 12 sons of Israel. And just as a quick side note for those of you who care, it's because Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, each got to be their own tribe because Joseph was pretty cool. And then at the same time, the Levites, one of the sons of Israel, weren't given an inheritance of the land at all. They were given the cities and given the priesthood. I say that only because it'll help some of you understand when you go to look at all this later, how come the names of the, uh, the sons of Israel don't match up with the tribes of Israel? Jacob also has this amazing future to look forward to. Now again, it's important to remember, and lately I've been sharing this with other brothers who are, and sisters who are doing work for God. And it's true if you're raising kids. It's true if you're starting a business. Sometimes the things God is gonna, uh, planning to do in your life, he's planning to do uh, long after you are gone. And is the, as is the case, the greatest things that would happen to the nation of Israel, to the offspring of Jacob, the greatest event in the history of Jacob's family lineage would take place Thousands of years after he was gone. From his son's Judah lineage would come King David and King Solomon. And from that same son lineage would come the lion of the tribe of Judah. The king of kings, the lord of lords, our Messiah and savior Jesus Christ. The greatest things that happened in his life happened a long time. He was called to serve. He was called to plow. He was called to break up the turf and water the ground and plant the seeds but the fruit of what he was doing with his life came 
much, much later and was much, much greater than he ever could have conceived. He is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He has a hopeful future, but Jacob also has some haunting failures. As, the, as his father demonstrated a favoritism of his older brother Esau, he learned that family trait, that sin, and he mistreated both his spouses and his children by also playing favorites. In Genesis 25, we read in verses 27 and 28, when speaking of his brothers, this is when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man in the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Jacob because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob was a mama's boy. And as a mama's boy, I can tell you, give you a little bit of insight, and I've also read others who would say the same, that what we're dealing with here is a dad who thought, I like my older son better because he does the stuff I'm interested in. A dad who's really into sports, who doesn't take kindly or treat his son very well because his son likes music or art. Happens all the time. Kids who are traumatized by a parent who doesn't affirm them because the child doesn't take after their things. As well, it, it can get right down to the characteristics of a child, a child who's more sensitive and not as quote-unquote culturally masculine, doesn't drive trucks and like to kill deer, and all of a sudden he's not a really good son because he's not real macho. This is what you got going on here. And Isaac has sinned against his son, Jacob, by saying, you're not everything I hope for. And so Jacob defaults to the life and the affirmation that he gets from his mother. But unfortunately, as is the case with many who are abused, they turn around and they abuse and do the same thing. And in Genesis 29, we see that Jacob went into Rachel, and also, and that means that he was marrying the little sister of Leah, and it's an interesting part of Old Testament history, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served their father Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So into, into Jacob's life, whether he wanted it or not, he's begun to see the bad fruit of playing favorites and showing favoritism. He has begun to see that there's resentment between his first wife, Leah, and his second wife, her little sister, whom he loved more than her. He loved her so much that it made Leah feel as if she was hated, and in some ways she very much was. Because what a cruel thing. In Genesis 37, Jacob continues. Even after God and he encounters God and is renamed Israel, he continues in this pattern. When he's got multiple children from multiple wives, he's got this... Um, this amazing thing and then later in his life his wife Rachel whom he loves more than the others gives birth to two sons Joseph and Benjamin it says now Israel in chapter 37 and verse 3 Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age as a result it says in the passage and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Jacob's sin was the sin of favoritism. 
It doesn't mean that there aren't people he liked and enjoyed more than others. It means that for selfish reasons, he showed favor to some and not to others. It's a sin roundly condemned in Scripture by Jesus' brother James. I read to you from James chapter 4. And at the same time, let me quickly state what was going on in the church that James was talking to. And that is that people were coming into church, and as was the custom in that world, the most important people took seats up front because it made them look good. It gave them social standing. These pews, which incidentally none of you ever inhabit. I don't know what that means in our culture. It could mean that my breath is bad, or it could mean that I have like you know, un- unfortunate saliva launches that happen in the short distance. Could be because, like me, you like to sit in the back row and talk, you know, and you think you're less seen there than you would be up front. Any number of things happen, and there's reasons why the actual, except for these fine two people, the front six rows of our church are empty, neither here nor there. Let me just say this. When I watch a televangelist program on TV, particularly ones where the guys do these evangelistic crusades, this is true mostly in the Pentecostal world, there's a group of pastors that sit on the platform. That was big when I was a kid in a Pentecostal world coming to Christ. Who was on the platform was important. Were you honored? to sit up there while Jimmy Swagger did his thing. And you'd see the pastors, and they must have been pastors who made it possible for him to have the crusade. There, there obviously was some buy-in associated with getting one of these front row seats. But the point is, it was a place of honor. And so what, what they would happen was they would give the places of honor to people who were culturally significant because it made the people who were leading the church feel like they were doing a good job or feel like they were important themselves. Into this, James writes this. James, the brother of Jesus. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, quote, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, and incidentally, that would be Jesus. We'll get to that in just a minute. Also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is saying about his half-brother Jesus is, the same guy who said, do not murder, said, love your neighbor as yourself. We love to take great pride in the fact that I've never robbed a bank, never once walked into Wells Fargo with the intention of holding them up. And so I feel like I'm morally superior to those people who would steal. When in fact, over here, Jesus also said, love my neighbor as myself, and not to show favoritism. Whenever we sin, we know it's because we're trying to meet a need in a way that is not prescribed by God. So when you think about it, you have to ask the question, why would I show favoritism? I have some thoughts on the subject. We show favoritism when we believe we can get from someone instead of giving to someone. We show favoritism when we think we will get something from someone instead of giving something to someone. We show favoritism when rich people get things because we receive a benefit of some sort. Now, I want to point out, it's not just financial wealth that elicits favoritism. 
Sometimes it's other types of wealth. For instance, the wealth of importance. Inviting famous or popular people. Or your kind of people, which could get into some issues of racism or sexism. Your people to participate because it makes you look good to be with them. Or it makes you conversely look badly to be associated with those who are not that way. This is the life of a, of a student pastor, you have to understand, is that I'm dealing with kids, and if you can think back to your middle and high school years, if you were in a big school or you were in a school that uh, wasn't a Christian school, and it's probably still the case, I wasn't in a Christian school environment, but I teach in one, and I, it's probably the same there too. And that is, there's a sense of, I want to be one of the popular kids, and so I will tend to hang out with the popular kids at the expense of the kids who aren't popular. I've seen this sort of favoritism take place in the church. Now, it doesn't happen because culturally, at least in the Reformed Presbyterian world that I was a part of, we didn't have platforms where you could sit. Uh, What we did have, though, was the role of the elder. And I have seen in many churches, and I have to say that to the shame of pastors all over the place, people are made elders and leaders in churches independent of an evaluation of whether or not they carry with them the characteristics that Scripture has prescribed for those who would be elders. Oftentimes, the church mirrors the motivation of organizations, nonprofits or secular organizations, for-profit organizations that say, we're going to have people on our board that are influential. We're going to have people on our board that can raise money. We're going to have people on our board that have the respect of the culture. And people can literally buy their way onto boards that make them look important and make them feel important. And the church falls prey to that. Instead of following the prescriptive mandate from Scripture that elders would be shepherds who actually care about people, pastors, for their own convenience, for their own security, get the guys with the real deep pockets to be a part of that elder board. It's a darn shame. And it's a sin against God. And it's a form of favoritism. Preference that you and I would give that is based primarily on how we will benefit instead of how others will benefit. This is favoritism. And Jesus himself condemns this type of selfishness as essentially anti-Christian. From Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Hear, friends, the words of Jesus. But I say to you, he who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, 
even as your Father is merciful. At the heart of Jesus' command is a presumption that you and I would have the capacity to be merciful as God is merciful. To do that, we have to begin to see the benefit of being merciful. We have to begin to see and think about the things that would make being merciful to others preferable to being selfish and effectively using people. I have, as opposed to other weeks when I have three extraordinarily coordinated points, I have one single overarching point for today's message, and that is this. It should be obvious why favoritism is condemned. It is the opposite of Christ-likeness. I'll say it again. It should be obvious why favoritism is condemned. It is the opposite of Christ-likeness. But love your enemies, it says in verse 35, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The joy of being merciful, the joy of not showing favoritism is that it gives you one more opportunity in a culture that is filled with selfish favoritism to reflect the glory of God to the people around you. You do not have to pass out religious literature at your workplace to stand out, friend. You want to make a difference for the kingdom of God? Be radically selfless. Be merciful. Hang out with people at work that no one else will hang out with. Befriend people in your neighborhood that no one else wants to be around. You don't have to be one of those weirdos who walks up and down the street with a big sign that says, Repent, the end is near. You want to make a difference for Jesus? You want to stand out like a sore thumb and have everybody around you sort of go, Wow, that's different. Want to make a difference for Christ in our world? The way you do that is by reflecting his character, and he has given to us a gift. It's a way to reflect his character in such a way as to almost blind people. It's to say, you seem to be a well-put-together person, but you tend to want to help and give and sacrifice for those who, who can't help themselves. I don't get that. That seems abnormal, and it is. Because we only do so by God's grace. We only do so by God's power. And it most certainly in this world of ours shines a huge light on the character of God. Favoritism is condemned by Scripture because it fails to show the character of God. Favoritism is selfish. God didn't and doesn't show favoritism. Now some would say to that, I don't believe that that's true. And there have been times in my life where I've lamented how others might be more successful than me or more noted than me or smarter than me or taller than me or certainly more good-looking than I am or have more hair than I do or more talent than I do. I have lamented, as perhaps you have too, that, God, you seem to show favorites. But the way we know God doesn't show favorites is because for those he has blessed with much, he demands more. See, you can say, "I'm I'm a favorite of God. I'm a gazillionaire. Well, congratulations, you're expected to give gazillions more than everybody else. I'm super talented. Congratulations, you're expected to serve with those talents more than the untalented. There is no favoritism with God because when he doles out the gifts and you get an extra large portion of those gifts, those aren't for you. Those are for him and those are for him to use to serve other people. 
the more blessed are expected to be a blessing to others. And that's effectively what he told Abraham. Now, on one hand, we could quickly assess that the more we want, the more we know the love of God, the more we can show it to others. And I've used that analogy. I use it when I do weddings. And uh, Jeremy's here with his fiance, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, it's her first Sunday with us. I would say that, you know, when I do their service, very thrilled to be a part of that. Uh, one of the images, and hopefully I won't use the same one, or she'll be like, gosh, man, come up with something new. Uh, I'll tell people that if you're going to love people in marriage, if you're going to love them unconditionally, you're, you have to actually have known unconditional love. If you're going to paint a picture of a sunset in the Bahamas, you have to bend the Bahamas to do it pretty well. You can say, well, I've seen pictures. It's not the same. You have to experience it yourself. You have to take in all the sights, the sounds, the smell. It makes your art take life. Trying to describe something you've never seen is virtually impossible. And if you and I haven't experienced the love of God, it is absolutely axiomatic and true that we can't show it to other people. You cannot demonstrate something you've never seen. And you cannot live out God's love and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you and love others as God has loved you unless you have experienced grace and love and mercy yourself. There's a much deeper sin behind the sin of favoritism. This is a phrase that Tim Keller uses a lot, the sin behind the sin. And it really is the sin of idolatry. It's the sin of not looking to God. And this is where, as your pastor, I, I embarrassingly and at the same time by the call of God in my life have to testify to my own brokenness. And if you wanted to be at a church, I've said it before, where your pastor didn't have any flaws, you've picked the wrong one. I can testify that the reason we show favorites is because at the deepest level of our beings, Many of us are looking for affirmation or adulation from others instead of God. We need the approval of men and women of influence because we seek our value and our sense of importance from our relationship to, quote-unquote, important people. Now, when I was in seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, our seminary staff was populated with a lot of really well-known theologians and some of whom were particularly gracious and spent a lot of time with students. And, and, you know, you could access them pretty easily. And then there were others, and they were the bigger stars, if you will, of the seminary. They were a little harder to get around. And uh, there was one in particular that uh, a lot of students got to hang around with. And I remember at a distance feeling sort of envious of the fact that they got to be around this person. And this person sort of fed that by having them serve him in a certain way. And so in order to be a part of that entourage, you kind of sort of had to, to contribute and make yourself valuable to that person. And there was something about that that on a sinful level, I felt like, you know what, I, I deserve to be liked for who I am. And then on the other hand, I thought, I really don't want to feed that beast, which is to say, you know, people will like me if I do things for them. That's not really unconditional love. And all of that does is to serve as I look back at myself because I don't know the heart of this particular superstar pastor, professor, or theologian. I don't know their heart, so I can't judge them. What I can do is look at my own heart and say, how sad that my internal dialogue was, how come I'm not important to these people? And it's ultimately because I have 
programmed myself from the earliest of ages in not only my sinful condition, but the culture and the world in which I was raised to say, I'm important because of who I hang around with. I have an extraordinarily vivid memory. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but it is absolutely as crystal today as it was when it happened 30-something years ago. I was a young teenager, and I was hanging out with these kids. It was a middle, I had just gone up to junior high. It's called middle school now. And in elementary school, I was like the neighborhood punching bag. But I developed, like, my athletic ability late in elementary school, and, and I kind of grew. And then when I got into this whole new environment, um, I got to, like, have a fresh start. And I remember going over to these cool guys' houses. And one day I was sitting in one of their rooms, and, and there were these three guys who were, like, the most popular guys in the school. And I was sitting in there with them, and they were talking about this cute girl. And I said, ah, she's probably not going to like me. And, and one of them said, why not? You're cool. You hang out with us. And I remember the rush of adrenaline that came through my body as I said, I'm in. I'm in. I remember it like it was yesterday. It's really sad. But that has set the tone. I know, now you laugh. But that has set the tone for what has been a, a really sad journey of life where I start assessing whether or not I'm valuable based on whether the cool kids will let me be a part of their table. Now, perhaps you're not as sad as I am. My envy, my jealousy, my slander, my hatred, all of the things that are ugly about me can be traced to my sinful dependence on others for what God wants to give me, which is his unconditional love and mercy. And as is always the case with you and I, the first step of repentance in our lives is not to determine not to do some activity that we find displeasing to God. If you've been to church for any length of time, as I have, and I've preached sermons like this before, and I beg forgiveness from God and for anybody who would have ever listened. The first step for you is not to grit your teeth and say, I will not show favoritism anymore. I have been convicted to my core. The problem is not that we're showing favoritism. The problem is that we don't know the love of God and how he has unconditionally shown favor to us. Our impulse, our compulsion should be to first repent of our autonomy from him. Our desire to be happy in life apart from the burden of being friends with God. Our, our desire to make it in this world without having to daily rely on him. It demonstrates our selfishness. The gospel offers grace and forgiveness. We talk about that all the time here. We celebrate it in communion. We'll celebrate it in just a few minutes here. Interestingly enough, though, it is often rejected by some because it takes the edge off of our need for complete humility. People will talk about the gospel. They'll say, well, I don't believe the gospel talks about Jesus being substituted for me and punished for my sins because that just seems like really mean. And it makes me look and feel really bad. And, and I get that at the core level, but understand that we naturally are given in every realm of life to do something to create a way that makes us look good apart from total dependence on God. The core struggle of the human soul is that we want to find value. We want to know that our Creator loves us, and we don't want to acknowledge that we don't deserve that. He mercifully has come and said, listen, 
Quit trying to earn my love. Quit trying to earn my favor. Quit trying to do things to make yourself feel acceptable to me. You're acceptable to me by my grace alone. Period. End of sentence. And anything you might do, like caring for others, showing kindness to people who don't deserve favor, all of that has to spring forth from you and I accepting completely that our status before God is a gift of His kindness. Because that's what He has said. In verse 36 of Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Do you, do you know this merciful Father? Or is He ticked off at you 24 hours a day because you just blew it again? I would encourage you today as you come to communion, perhaps this is the first time you've come to communion in a while and thought about it, that you'd think about how gracious God is. And that may mean you say, God, I'm sorry for ignoring you. And for some who come to church for the first time in a while, coming to communion might be a way of saying, you know what, I've been trying to create a system in my own life where I could try to feel good about who I was apart from just Jesus forgiving me. And I'm tired. And I don't want to do that anymore because it's killing me. And so I'm just going to call out for your grace and your kindness and your forgiveness. He offers it. He offers it to all of us. Because he does not show favoritism. Let us pray. Father, this day we want to repent, but not of a particular sin. We want to repent of the more substantial sin of even though you've...